Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Dr. Kristen Lee. Chris, called Dr. Chris by her students, is an internationally recognized, award-winning behavioral science professor, clinician, researcher, author, activist, and comedian from Boston, Massachusetts. She operates a consulting practice devoted to preventing and treating burnout and is the author of a new book with Sounds True. It's called Worth the Risk. Learn how to microdose bravery to grow resilience, connect more, and offer yourself to the world. Chris is an unusual person. She's highly accomplished, and yet she deeply questions our culture of overachievement. She's a psychotherapist who is also a stand-up comic, working at the intersection of humor and mental health. She's an artist, someone who believes in making our lives a work of art. She inspires each of us to be one of a kind, as she is. Here's my conversation with Dr. Kristen Lee. To begin, Chris, tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about you and the winding path you've been on that brought you to write Worth the Risk. It's certainly been a path um, as a person with a lived experience of anxiety to really think about risk taking and what it means to show up in life and, and to overcome fear. And so, you know, that was always a phenomena in my life is, you know, just that inner struggle. And it made me really curious as a person, um, you know, people's stories of overcoming and of grappling. And as time would tell, as I was maneuvering through, um, I decided to become a therapist. And in that, learned so much from those who were bravely coming forward with their stories of both tremendous trauma and grappling with all kinds of chaos and difficulties to really coming to a place of resilience and deeper acceptance. And so that really gave me a lot to work with and, and caused me to want to go deeper into research. And so uh, I transitioned as psychotherapist to professor and really began this process of research around, you know, what does it mean to be resilient in a world where fear is contagious, where anxiety is the new normal, they're calling it the age of anxiety. And I think I was seeing sort of this duality, this, you know, people going through these things, but also overcoming. And I was curious about their process. And I knew my own process had a lot of bumps along the way, but was one that got me to a place of increased comfort, um, embracing my weirdness, if you will, being able to accept, you know, all those different parts of myself in a more 
deeper way in my life. And so that was really part of what, what started it is seeing those I served in therapy, in my classroom, in my research, embodying this sense of gumption and spirit. And sometimes when you see that, it feels a little romanticized. And as you dig in, you realize that it came through a lot of massive redos. It came through strategic risk-taking and that willingness to face the anxiety rather than lean into the primitive instinct to curl into fetal position. And so that really, um, you know, began this process of writing. And I think we all write about things that we struggle with. And so for me, uh, the struggle to overcome anxiety, to take risks, to not feel afraid um, that I'm going to hurt someone's feelings or I'm going to let someone down or that someone's going to judge me. Those were things that I was grappling a lot with throughout my life and I've been working to overcome. And so writing this was about helping us all see that's not just old school mental health condition, but that's very much the human condition. And we can't avoid risk. We can't skirt it. It's part of our everyday life. So the more we can get comfortable with the uncomfortable, the more we can find our way through it. Mm -hmm. I want to start just by thanking you for beginning our conversation with sharing your own history and your own process mm -hmm. with anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would feel like, no, you know, I don't want the world to see that. How did you mm -hmm. get comfortable with being able to say, yeah, not only am I embracing my weirdness, which maybe, you know, <laughs> wouldn't be such a big deal, but, you know, anxiety has a, a kind of like mental health stigma in mm -hmm. some people's minds. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So it was, it was certainly through a very strategic microdose approach to coming out with this. And for me, you know, philosophically, my training as a clinical social worker and as I work in macro social work as well to overcome stigma and discrimination for anyone with lived experiences, that is just such a central part of my ethos. And also as a human resilience researcher, and a person who's obsessed with brain science, I also knew that again, many of us are likely vacillating and in and out of episodes across our lifespan. So, you know, gone are the days of the 1950s hangover where we think that it's a moral failing on someone's part if they suffer or struggle, or that, you know, it's a, just a family issue or it's something to be hush about. Rather, you know, I, I have a, hold a firm belief that we need to really bring mental health out of the shadows. And I was feeling a little bit um, like I was skirting around it a little bit. I was dropping hints in my writing and in my public work. And then I decided of all places um, to really come out with it in front of all my peers at work. So I think we all know, <laughs> you know, a peer presentation is always the most provocative and the most anxiety producing, right? And I went off script, I went off the PowerPoint, and I just talked about what my brain does. So in the book, I talk about the worst case scenario brain. <laughs> and it's this idea that, you know, when you have anxiety, your brain just like is super speed to the worst possible outcome. So you send me a text, I write back, I see those three dots, I think you're mad at me. Or the phone rings and I think someone died, right? It's like that automated thinking. And I knew that, you know, I wanted to come out more deliberately and intentionally with this story, not only of struggle, but also of recovery. 
And Tammy, when I first did this, I walked back to my office. My first thought was, is my boss going to start checking up on me? What are people going to think? Should I even go back to the office? And instead, I was greeted with, thank you for saying that. That's exactly how I feel. But I was afraid to say it. And from that moment on, it really invited a new level of camaraderie, community, and safety into my life where I realized that I'm just talking about what's happening in my brain. And these are, again, conditions of our modern world within the level of trauma that we're all marinating in. Many of us are having these very proportionate reactions. And again, there's the biology, there's a social context behind it. And I realized that in coming out and telling my story, that that was not only a process of liberation for myself, but anyone else um, that could hear that message and understand or, you know, maybe experience a deeper level of safety for themselves. Mm -hmm. And one of the points you make in Worth the Risk that I thought was so point on and brilliant and helpful is that when we do share our vulnerabilities with our coworkers, with people, instead of leading with our masks, we actually Mm -hmm. get to feel connected to people, which is what we all want. We get to feel connected. So I think that that's so important. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, in the very beginning of the book, you tell a story about being at a comedy club and how you had a breakthrough insight while you were sitting in the audience of the comedy club about this micro-dosing of bravery, which is really the theme of Worth the Risk. Tell us that story. Yes, so I was there with my good friend, Jay Smitty, who's also a comedian. I also perform as a comedian, and we were watching Miss Pat. And so Miss Pat is just an extraordinary, courageous woman who overcame significant trauma. And what was interesting is a comedy show, and she's dropping these trauma truth bombs one after another. And it's just the whole crowd is in stitches. And I'm thinking, you know, in my training and my career, I've never seen anyone talk about like their deepest, worst experiences in a way that would actually elicit laughter. It felt like almost slightly irreverent. But as an artist, she just skillfully showed the ways in which we're wired to be resilient. And at the end of the show, what she did, you know, after just having us in stitches, she turned to all of us, the room got very quiet, and she said, we must be brave to tell our stories. And it just it just resonated. It made so much sense. And it, it, it caused me to realize, you know, I, I went on to read her book and I, I kind of like binged everything that she has out there. And I realized that it wasn't like she just took to the mic and just dumped all her trauma in front of people in one fell swoop. First, it was someone giving her that feedback. Look, you have fantastic wit. You have a sense of humor. Have you ever thought about stand up? And then she, you know, took to the stage slowly but surely and built up that courage. She nurtured her courage. And that was just a moment of insight as I was doing my academic research and, you know, just thinking about everything at hand in the world, the level of fear and the level of trepidation and then social media, which, you know, causes us to curate ourselves 
and to, you know, show up in, in ways that aren't telling our true stories. So her boldness just truly impacted me. And it, it caused me to realize just as in my research and the work I do around behavior change, it has to happen in a very paced way because I think people risk is pitched like, you know, you have to jump out of an airplane or bet it all at the Bellagio or maybe like get on stage like Miss Pat and like reveal yourself, which many people are afraid to even do public speaking. And it's not any of those things. It's the small acts that we we work towards that free ourselves of what society is yelling at us 24 seven about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And rather taking that agency, that psychological agency to move forward according to our values with strategic risk. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned you're an expert in resiliency. What's the relationship between micro-dosing bravery, taking these small acts, and then being able to be resilient when really difficult, big things happen? Mm. One of the things that I have loved to see transpire in the resilience research and in the conversation is that we no longer think of resilience as a trait, something that we're born with or we're not. And what we know is resilience is a process. It's a process of positive adaptation during the face of adversity. And what we know is that risk can nurture resilience. So in a similar fashion, risk is also a process that we grapple with, that we reckon with in order to really show up more fully in life. And I think one of the key pieces that you see uh, in this whole work is this idea that really safe relationships matter. When we look at resilience research, among the most protective factors towards resilience are our relationships. So if we're showing up like phony, afraid to speak up in our relationships, afraid to be our true selves, whether this is at work, at home, or anywhere in between, that becomes a true barrier to honest and real connection. And we know loneliness is being called the new smoking as a health risk. We know that the pandemic has escalated that sense of disconnection, removing us from needed community that helps. And so in my research, I'm, I just, I'm obsessed with this whole idea that it's not trait-based. These are all processes that we can take on in order to stay and do well in today's context. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there's this interesting uh, both and here, and I wonder how you see it, which is we need safety, mm -hmm. as you mentioned. We need safety in our relationships. We need to feel safe in our, in our bodies. Uh, we need to feel safe that we can express ourselves. But we also have to go to that edge where we don't quite feel safe, where we're taking a risk, where it yeah. feels dangerous. So how do we find that right balance between... Hey, insights at the edge between being on the edge and, and being safe too. I, I want both. Yes. No, I agree. It, we can, we can do both all at once. And, and the key thing is, is realizing what do I stand for? What matters to me? What do I care about the most? What are my values? And then how does that guide my decisions over which risks to even choose and which to endeavor? And so 
you know, whenever we give into that feeling of uh, retreat or that feeling of crawling into fetal position and hiding out because we just can't face what's coming around the corner at warp speed, we have to recognize that when we face, when we, you know, really become more comfortable with the uncomfortable, we can grow. And the beauty of growth is that it's not just for the sake of personal gain or upward mobility, but it's really for the sake of society. So the more any of us, again, endeavor risk and look to become more uncomfortable and put ourselves out there, the more equipped we become to influence and lead others in that same way, to liberate as I talk about it. And so I think that that sense of safety is an illusion. That's another big piece here is that, you know, we can think, okay, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to go on the treadmill and fall down. So I'm not going to go on the treadmill. And then there's a trade-off with every risk is a trade-off. The trade-off is you won't be as fit if you don't get on that treadmill, right? Or you could think, you know, I've been burnt in my relationships. And so therefore I'm not going back on the dating apps. I'm not, I'm not going to put myself out there. And, you know, maybe you're not risking that like turmoil again or that heartbreak, but on the other hand, you're risking adventure or just, meeting people and and learning more about yourself and about life and creating moments of joy. So there's so many ways in which we can recognize the trade-offs by not doing risk. We're not necessarily causing ourselves to be safer. And in fact, we could really be disrupting adventure, growth, relationships, community, just things that maybe our wildest imaginations couldn't even conceive of. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, you, you use this phrase, uh, learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I think this is something that's now, it's part of the zeitgeist. I hear it a lot in terms of, in, in a good way, I'm, I'm, I think it's wonderful that we're mm-hmm. starting to say, oh, it's okay. I can be okay mm-hmm. with how uncomfortable I feel right now because I'm in a growth process. Something's mm-hmm. changing. And I want to talk about this specifically in terms of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And what have you learned in your own experience? How are you with yourself when you feel anxious in a way that you can withstand the feelings that come with anxiety? Mm. A lot of it is working on self-acceptance. That's been a process for me um, because I tend to have the perfectionistic tendencies or be that overthinker or unhealthy overachiever. So in my mind's eye, it's never enough. I should be doing more. And so a lot of it is changing those mindsets and behaviors that perpetuate uh, those ways of being that have led me to moments of high angst and burnout. Um, And then I think it's also all the advantage of my clinical training and the work that I do is to learn about anxiety and to recognize that there is an element of it. I always call it the frenemy. Anxiety is the frenemy. So there's an element of it that really reveals a level of conscientiousness, what we care about. Um, If we had no anxiety, we would just be indifferent or apathetic. And so I think just that learning around what it is that I can do in my practices to, again, be more self-compassionate and to stay anchored. And so a couple of things, Tammy. So one is you know, I really am very protective and I'm not religious at all, but I'm religious about my sleep and my lifestyle medicine. So making sure that I sleep, 
that I nourish properly with proper food, nutrition. I'm a neurotic walker. <laughs> and then, you know, my creative life. So my writing, my performing, all of those things, a sense of humor especially has been very protective. I think a lot of us through the pandemic had our typical practices and then we had to bring it to a whole nother level um, of practice. And so all of those things, you know, are things that I do on the daily that I've trained myself. And when we think about brain plasticity and our incredible wiring to keep adapting and growing and stopping these automated tendencies towards anxiety, that, you know, is a real catalyst for healing and change. So as you said, it's fantastic to see people talking about discomfort, about radical acceptance, about it's okay not to be okay. But a message here is we also don't have to stay stuck in that place like, okay, I'm just a person with anxiety. And yes, it waxes and wanes, but I also have been able to overcome many of those visceral, like the panic attacks. I'm very, I'm much less apt now to have panic attacks um, than I would have been before I really started to practice these things more intentionally. And the key for anyone listening and our community here is to remember that this isn't flip of switch. It's not overnight. Behavior change happens in micro doses, small strategically. And that's what gives us that momentum to continue the efforts that are important for our resilience. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about some of these micro doses in our lives and make it super real and grounded for people. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of some examples of where microdosing bravery could really help. And mm -hmm. we'll, we'll just explore a few of them together, if that's mm -hmm. okay. So yeah. in our relationships, mm -hmm. and the whole notion that we could speak up about something instead of keeping it buried. And then I was asking myself, well, why? Why do I not speak up in this relationship or that relationship? It could be at work. It could be with my partner. It could be with a friend. And it's like, well, you know, God, I don't want to get into it. And I'm, you know, conflict averse or really. And then there's going to be a whole discussion that's going to take forever. So what's your suggestion when someone knows, like, I have something to say here. I know I have something to say. In fact, I've had something to say for years. Uh, and I just keep burying it. I think that that's a very honest human reaction that many of us can relate to. And again, when we think about microdosing, think of it as a chip away approach, right? Like we chip away. So we test the waters. You could also maybe call it the hint dropping method. But to your point, I think we stay averse because we don't want to like enter that tunnel of chaos with someone, or we don't want World War III to break out in our relationships. But I think the thing that I've seen in my clinical work and, and by the way, in my own life, uh, you know, to be candid, I, you know, I have all these communication skills and training, and sometimes I'm a chicken. Sometimes I'm a total chicken, and I'm afraid to bring things up. I don't want to hurt someone's feelings, or to your point, you just don't want to go there. But ultimately, what happens is this creates what we might think of as a cumulative effect, a negative effect in our relationships. So if we just go along to get along and we smile or we avoid, it's going to catch up with us. And that's that whole reminder that risk can't be skirted or avoided. And again, it's not about sitting down and having this massive deep conversation, 
But it could be something as simple as saying, Tammy, you know, it would mean a lot to me if, you know, you knew this about me. And it's it's really self-advocacy. It's a form of self-advocacy to just speak up. And I think ultimately for any of our relationships, whether in professional arenas or in our personal lives, we ultimately, if we want to really enjoy deeper presence with one another, uh, just a beautiful connection with each other, that honesty and that ability even to maneuver through that can really be very healing and, and very pivotal in our relationship. So it's a way of engaging in life um, that is a bit scary, but worth doing. Wonderful response. Now, another arena where I think many of us could use some microdosing of bravery has to do with our creative life, being as expressive, being mm -hmm. as artistic as we actually feel inside. And, you know, once again, I think there's all kinds of, of things that go on, whether it's, you know, that ship sailed or mm -hmm. you brought up perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So talk some about microdosing bravery in terms of our creative expression? Mm. I think it's important for us all to look at our context as we evaluate this. So in my writing, I talk about the commodity complex of today. So this is the idea that success is measured very narrowly and it's very linear. So, you know, by the age of five, before someone's lost their first tooth, the kid already has to be nowhere their top tier college is or by the time they're in third grade, they should be reading at, you know, three grade levels ahead. Or by the time they're in high school, they should be taking 20 AP classes and co-curriculars. So I think it starts, I'm, I'm outlining this because it starts early on around what's socially acceptable, what's desired, and what success looks like. And creativity gets squashed. It gets totally squashed. You know, conformity is certainly, you know, just pressured onto us and there i think especially as we maneuver into adult life and if we're in a professional environment we can feel like we have to be very bind up or it just can feel like creativity gets stifled so i think for all of us it starts with recognizing those social forces and that social context and ironically what's also ironic is the data shows that creativity is like one of the most sought after job skills of today. We obviously need to be creative and agile thinkers. And yet still there's this like strange dichotomy there or paradox around how creative should we be? Um, what I will say is that that creative way of living our lives, however that might be, it might be by wearing a colorful outfit and living like living our life as art. It could be the way you put seasoning on your food. It could be the way you, you use language. It could be the way you sing a song or you paint or you create something with your hands. So creativity is something that we know nourishes the brain. And yet in our modern life, it's squashed whether, again, because of these perils of, you know, erroneous definitions of success or just like lack of time. And then we feel like, oh, you know, I'm not being productive to be creative, but actually creativity and creative endeavors prime our brain to, you know, really be able to be analytical, stay on task, and it helps us in many other areas of our lives. 
So I think creativity, uh, it's a value I will tell you that I hold very sacred and dear. Um, and one that I think, you know, I could give other examples if you want, of just things that have helped me break through my own anxiety and fear um, in a very yeah, strategic well, way. I'm curious because here you are, you're doing, you know, stand up comedy. Uh -huh. And you also mentioned, though, that you have at least had a history of perfectionism. And I thought to myself, God, you know, Chris, I'm sure she's gotten up on stage and <laughs> told a series of jokes that the room was like silent. <laughs> crickets, how, all crickets. Yeah. <laughs> how does she deal with that? I think that's the joy of humor. Like, I feel like I use humor as a practice on and off stage, right? And you realize like everything is a skit in life or everything's like a curb your enthusiasm or Seinfeld moment if you let it be. So that's the creativity in the mind's eye is just to realize like, oh, of course that went wrong or of course I blew that line. And the humor has been like one of the greatest pathways to dismantle perfectionism. But I think another reason I'm obsessed with it is I think that obviously laughter is the best medicine, right? It's so therapeutic, but it can call important issues into, into view for all of us. And that's another big theme and worth the risk is community, solidarity, and moving to a better place with all our social ills and issues. And so for me, like it's worth the risk of comedy. I guess my one, my, I think the biggest fear I had wasn't like bombing in a club or something like that. I thought that it might diminish my credibility professionally. So sure. I thought, here I am an academic. I've worked my whole life. I was the first in my family to go to college. I worked four jobs in my undergrad years, state school, like all that, all that work to get people to take me seriously and overcome my imposter syndrome. And then I'm like, what am I doing? Am I going to undo it? So in the pandemic, one of my absurd moments was to start a comedy mental health show. And this was to raise funds um, for mental health access and awareness. And, you know, I started this whole thing and I thought, oh no, are people at work gonna think I'm totally weird? Are they, and again, that whole thing I first felt when I came out with my mental health story. And I thought, you know, is this going to diminish my serious work? Um, and sure, there might be people out there that think it's a little bit questionable, but I see it as a catalyst for teaching. And more important, I see it as a catalyst for access because so many people can't afford higher education. They might not even be able to afford a book or just be in that position. And I'm, I'm very against pretentiousness or esoteric stuff, which that word always cracks me up because it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> but I'm, I'm very against, you know, those barriers that are created in society. So I think for me, it's worth taking the risk of people maybe having perspectives about that, that zany side of me or that creative life I live. It's worth it if I'm creating a conversation, if I'm creating access, if I'm offering information, um, in a way that people might not expect to get at a comedy show. You know, I'm dropping in these other really important points that are important um, for me to share in the world. Mm -hmm. One of the insights I had reading Worth the Risk is that when we do put ourselves out there and risk being criticized, mm -hmm. which your story 
uh, illustrates exactly. And I've seen this in my own life when I've put myself out there. And believe me, I was like, God, I, you know, I, I loved working at Sounds True in the early years when I wasn't in front of the camera, in front yeah. of the microphone. I was mm-hmm. behind the scenes editing other people's work. Like, let them take the you know, the arrows. I'm not mm-hmm. going to. But okay, when you risk criticism, it happens. You get criticized, mm-hmm. but you also get community. Yeah. The people who resonate are drawn towards you. It's worth the risk. <laughs> Indeed. No, and I think that's that's the message. It's that ultimately there's that trade-off, that initial, oh, that moment of what did I just do? Or that moment of sheer vulnerability, right? It's like so nail biting and provocative, but then you see what comes around. And like, I think it's not only that we're developing those relationships and community, but if, if anyone relates to being a perfectionist or hard on themselves, if you can also move the needle in terms of self-acceptance and, and deeper joy and presence with yourself, then that's also a form of liberation. And I think, you know, we're always going to get criticized in in this world. And that, I think at the end of the day, we have to unhook from, you know, caring about that external validation or comparing ourselves to each other, but knowing as long as we are moving along in our values through this strategic process of risk, then we will be nourished and we will be protected and we will find our fellow travelers along the way. Now, a couple times you've used this phrase, strategic mm-hmm. risk-taking, the mm-hmm. strategic process yes. of risk. Help, help me understand the strategy part. Well, I think people, again, when they hear risk, it's like a little bit unsure. Like people, what, you know, what do you mean by that? And there's a lot of old adages about risk, you know, like, what is it, two in the hand? What's the one about the bushel? Two in the Definitely hand, keep the, the one keep the one bird that you're going to kill in your hand. Yeah, you're yeah, going to so, kill it because you've got it anyway. But I think that's the gist of it versus yeah, so, trying to get two. Yeah. So I think when we think about risk again, there's a lot of these Avenger-like versions of it. We think we have to just be, you know, so ultimately brave. But strategic risk again is about taking it slow and steady, making it a practice. And as I've said, connecting the dots with our values to our actions. So this is a big piece of the work that I do is spurring on behavior change, sustainable behavior change. So the idea with with this here, with with risk that is strategic, it's not random, right? Because I think the way I talk about it is don't keg stand risk. And what I mean by that is we think it's these grand jaw-dropping gestures of risk that we need to assert. Strategic risk is, and I think this is good for anyone that identifies as an introvert or ambivert or someone that maybe feels very risk averse or they don't feel like they're this big, like bold person, this big Mufasa, right? They feel more like a cowardly lion. It's the strategic part is just realizing it's the tiny things that you do step-by-step that embolden you that give you that momentum to feel ready for that next step. So recognizing it very much as a process, but not random, like not like, okay, well then I'm gonna just put all my savings into Bitcoin or I'm just gonna like really tell my boss what I think. It's more like in a measured way so that you can then integrate what you've done. So think of microdosing and digestion. It's little doses, a little bit at a time 
that again edify and nourish and build that added momentum of courage and so that's the strategic part rather than like fighting it all up at once and like just facing the consequences of that Mm -hmm. in the chapter where you talked about don't keg stand Uh risk i had i had to look that up i was like (laughs) what is a keg stand and i thought oh my god you're you're dating yourself and i'm i am uh Never done that. Uh, There you go. Okay. To me, uh, I want to share one of the most inspiring parts of the book and one of the parts that I found the most challenging. Mm. So one of the parts that I found the most inspiring had to do with how, in your view, in this time that we're in right now, we have to search out what our values are and decide what risks we're willing to take to speak out for social justice and to speak out for people who don't have the same amount of privilege that we have in the culture. And I wonder if you can talk more about that. And specifically also, you share the science around being a passive bystander, being in the sort of spectator role instead of being an active change maker in the world. So if you can talk some about that. Indeed, this is one of the most important pieces is this isn't just a book about personal gain or growth. It's about social change. And when we look at our context at hand and all the systemic isms and injustices, I think many of us are left in a place where we want to help. We want to speak out. We want to hold ourselves to a high level of accountability. And it can often be difficult to know what to do, what will bring that impact in the world, you know, to really bring about the the changes that are sorely needed. So when we think about being an active contributor versus a passive bystander, that's about, again, looking at our own biases. That's a risk that many of us, it's, it's a very difficult one to confront our own biases and prejudices. Um, it's it's being willing to confront the the this really really fraught uh, condition that we've all inherited in society. You know these terrible injustices against BIPOC individuals and communities and LGBTQIA communities, and to look at how the dominant group has just had its way. And these things can you know really obviously there's a real lack of helpful dialogue happening very often in the polarized socio-political climate. Um, But one thing I really want to encourage is looking for ways we can begin our process of active contribution. And as you know, one of the ways I think about it is in the diversity and inclusion conversation, people years ago would talk a a lot about tolerance, like, oh, let's tolerate each other. And I'm thinking, okay, we can tolerate apps that you know, shut down on us too quickly or long lines or that coworker that's always, you know, has a million questions. Like we can tolerate those things, but I think we can do better when it comes to seeing and loving and being accountable for one another. I also have a lot of issue. I take issue with a framing around when people say, well, I accept you. So let's, let's promote acceptance. And to me, that also is problematic because that sort of holds, again, that dominant group perspective like, okay, I'm right, but I still accept you. I still 
I still unconditionally love you. And I, you know, I, I accept you. It still holds that dominant position. So what I advocate for is human reverence. The idea that we see each other in full splendor with awe and gratitude and admiration, and especially for anyone who's been underserved, marginalized, underrepresented, we should look at their lived experiences and their stories and be awestruck. And unfortunately in societies, those are the very opposite of what happens. There's so much judgment and blame and shame and, and disparaging ways. And so for any of us, as we want to endeavor social change, it begins with confronting and unlearning those biases, looking at how any potential positions of privilege we have can be used for the greater good and to not be passive bystanders. Like that's a, you know, it's an easy one not really easy. But, you know, when we see things speak up and ask questions, you know, why did you say that about this person or this group? And I think as we all have that collective courage, we can call things into question in a way that's effective. What we're looking at now with like cancel culture, for example, is a lot of rubbing of noses and messes and a lot of shame and fighting and finger pointing from a behavior change standpoint, that is not what helps us move to a place of solidarity and community and equity. And so that's something that is a central message as well that's so important is that we take those risks of not being passive. And again, the science shows that it's a mixed bag. On one hand, there's all those studies that came out about you know, passive bystandership, some of them have been overturned. And ultimately, so much of the new science is revealing our desire to connect, our desire to look out for each, for each other, and the kindness that we have as human beings, as a species. We're sort of this paradox, but there's a lot we can leverage as we build these ways of interacting and engaging and having reverence that can build collective momentum. Mm -hmm. In terms of having reverence, even just connecting with each person, great gift to great gift is mm -hmm. something you mm -hmm. point out yeah. is worth the risk. Indeed. Can you talk about that? I think that the greatest gift that we can give each other, Tammy, is our ability to see ourselves in one another, um, to see our strengths, our inherent beauty, our worth, our dignity, our capacity to microdose risk and be nourished and to be bold and brave and courageous. We see that everywhere we turn. And I think the gift is being able to reflect that to each other and to encourage each other in that. We need that. You know, there's, you know, fear, hate, those are all very contagious. So are these ways of risk-taking that help us to bestow that gift upon one another, that gift of reverence and, you know, awe, and, and really that, you know, we're not alone and that we're all deeply connected. Mm -hmm. Now, I am going to share the part of the book that I found the most uh, challenging. We're going to get there in a moment. But mm -hmm. I realize there's one thing that uh, hasn't been fully clear to me, mm -hmm. which is I asked you about your perfectionism. And you said, well, in doing the comedy, humor really helped me. And I thought, huh, because 
You know, I think that's a streak many of us have. We want to speak up or we want to try this new thing or we we want to, but we don't want it to not go well. So we hold back Mm -hmm. because we want to do it right. You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. how have you gotten over that? I think that we have to call out the notion of perfectionism as an illusion. Like there's no such thing as perfect. And society is trying to bait us into these ideals of, what makes us worthy. So I think it's first calling that out. And then I think my behavior science lens also helps me to realize, you know, just how foolish this is, how it's a futile effort uh, to strive for this, this unhealthy overachievement. And ultimately that really diminishes the quality of life. And it actually disrupts our ability to contribute more wholly and, and positively. And an area of my work is around avoiding burnout. So if we think we're going to just keep hustling and, you know, overriding our bodily systems and not investing in, in like what nourishes us and our own creative lives, then I think we can see ourselves ill-positioned. And we see so many people thinking, you know, falling into traps of social comparison. I, I think my work has revealed to me that we all have this tendency to, you know, pretend we're fine, but behind the scenes, On one hand, we can be very accomplished and have it together. And on the other hand, all at the same time, we could feel like we're a hot mess and we're going to lose it. And all those things are true both at the same time. And so, and that's okay. So I think, you know, just using that critical thinking lens, like, you know, what is this whole thing about perfectionism? Is it a thing? And then, you know, how do we talk back to it thoughtfully and in a way that helps us to unhook from those unhealthy myths and ideals. Mm-hmm. One of the lines I loved in the book you just talked about, you know, pretending we're fine, you write, pretending we are fine is not an act of courage. I thought that's great. We're talking about microdosing bravery and pretending we're fine mm-hmm. isn't, isn't necessarily a courageous act. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to underscore that. Okay. Here's the part I found challenging. The cult of over- achievement, the cult of overachievement. And as I was reading it, I thought, I don't know, have I bought into this overachievement thing? You know, uh, And how then, if we are committed and if we put too much of our energy into our culture's standards and this sense of all the goodies that come with overachieving, how that impacts our ability to take the risks we actually really need to take in our life. So I wonder if you can speak to that. Indeed, the cult of overachievement is alive and well. I see this in my work with students, very high performing students. I see this at work with the companies that I work with around the world that ask themselves the question, you know, how do we strive for rigor and excellence without compromising our well-being? And I think this is a question of, of our times, but it's been a question we needed to ask for a long time. You know, is, is success the definitions that we've been handed or is it something different? You know, I, I know so many people who have achieved pinnacles of so-called success and they're not even well enough to enjoy it, right? And so it's challenging some of those ideals that are presented and we see this a lot in schools and parenting, in this hyper-competitive global market, right? So it's everyone is striving to get into the right school and to have the right job and the letters after name and the 
the Tesla and the red bottom, you know, there's a lot in terms of materialism or just thinking we're commodities in life. And ultimately it's not worth sacrificing ourselves to a point of becoming ill or very dissatisfied with our lives. And so it's a hard one because I think we can still be um, contributing, you know, with full fervor in life, but without eroding ourselves to that point of, of being burnt out. And so I think that we all have to ask ourselves a lot of questions um, in terms of, again, what are our values? What, what do we care about? How do we want to feel? How do we want to experience life? How do we want to contribute positively in the world? And I think those can be guiding questions rather than what will people think about me or am I doing it right? I mean, that's the pressure to be right. And I think as a scientist for me, one of the guiding things is curiosity and any good inquiry will lead to more questions and answers. But in society, there's a lot of pressure to like have that right answer and think we know everything and to be mistake averse. We're afraid even, you know, if we get a B, like say we take a risk and we write a paper, we get a B, like everybody gets so caught up on metrics rather than our growth and our potential to grow and, and give more as a result of that deep growth. Mm -hmm. Now you've obviously accomplished, are accomplishing a lot in your life, professor, writer, researcher, comedian, artist, you know, freak at large, uh, a lot, <laughs> uh, all at the same time. How do you know when you're in the cult of overachievement versus just being a turned on high achiever? How do you know the difference? I think the difference is making sure that the values are leading my behavior. And I think for any of us that suffer in this way and that relapse and try to make it a daily practice to overcome these things, we know it's not a flip of a switch or something that isn't a constant effort to, to maneuver through. Um, I think for myself, I have really integrated a lot of rest time, a lot of reprieve in order for me to stay and do well. And I think that it, it, it's a burning question. I think the other thing, Tammy, I'll say is for anybody that sees themselves maybe as an identity, as a healer, a leader, an influencer, a caregiver, someone in human work, someone who cares about the human condition, I believe the burning question is, is it going to be enough? Is what I do going to be enough? Because we see the trauma at hand, we see the magnitude, you know, the enormity of suffering. And I think for any of us who are driven towards social change work, elevating the human condition, that's like the hardest piece for me is knowing when I need to also plug myself back in and when I need to step back. And I think, you know, learning to set those boundaries, that's a process because there's, I think many of us in that, category, we struggle to know when it's enough. I think it's the predominant question of our times, given the enormity of our times. But I think ultimately, we have to recognize that we're human beings, not human doings. We're not robots. We're not machines. And our legacy can be so much more when we take that time to restore ourselves and replenish rather than just living on the fr you know, fringe of well-being all the time and chasing our tails. And I know this is hard. You know, in our modern world, there's a lot 
of disruptors to well-being. But I think when we set those boundaries and we set those intentions and we we match those intentions with our actions and behaviors, we can get traction and momentum that helps us. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris, I want to make sure that the listeners who are joining us are leaving this conversation with a micro-dosing bravery plan of some kind in their life, Mm -hmm. something that they're actually going to take action mm-hmm. on. Can you help can you help them with that? How did they figure out like okay, it's a small act. This is the part of my life that's calling me. These are my values. I'm going to actually do this small thing. Yes, I would I would suggest assess your relationship to risk. Ask yourself, how willing am I to try new things? How willing am I to speak up or live out my values? So first start with that and then think about an area like let's start with a relationship where you want it to be more connective and maybe you know you drop that hint you start with just a a piece of self-advocacy within that relationship it would mean a lot to me if um, that's a great first step and then see how that goes or if you're a creative person and you've always wanted to write or perform maybe just start by sharing it one-to-one with someone that you feel safe with and then you can extend from there, you know, what feels comfortable in due time. All right. Now, towards the end of Worth the Risk, here's a few sentences that I circled that I thought were really right to the point. Answering the call to truth is not without consequence. Exposure and expulsion are amongst the most frightening propositions we face Mm -hmm. as a sapient and sentient species. Liberation does not come about without a knotted stomach, dramatic sacrifice, and intense peril. Chris, this is intense writing here. Okay. (laughs) Dramatic sacrifice and intense peril. Thus, there is a new call to redefine psychological safety. And I thought, hmm, okay, how does Chris suggest we redefine psychological safety in our time? Because we have to answer the call to truth. And that means we're risking exposure and expulsion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and not to be taken lightly for sure. I think I think the key piece is, is that we our primitive instincts and our social conditioning cause us to think that, that safety comes from hiding you know, or pretending or presenting our curated versions of ourselves. The new psychological safety at hand in this new world is one in which we can be more free, more liberated to be ourselves and creating that sense of safety in our environments, in our relationships. So it's not by, you know, psychological safety is not Um, brought about through this pretending process. It's when we're actually our true selves and we're seen and we're revered that that's when the healing can begin. So psychological safety is not, again, something that's just always in reach in a very easy way. But what I want to encourage everyone to think about is how do you work to build this culture of psychological safety? in your organization, your company, in your family, your home, in your your relationships, your most intimate to your acquaintances, your colleagues, 
how do you build that? And it's not by being fake, fake it till you make it or pretending everything's okay. It's through honest ways of being and conversation. And I think so many companies right now that I speak with, it's just so awkward right now. It's like, how do we attend to the mental health crisis at hand? How do we have honest conversation? How do we be responsive to the actual human needs right now and, and create that sense of psychological safety and trust? So many companies are asking that. And I think in, in, in individuals, right? How do we build that when everything in the world feels so overwhelming? So I think it begins by the honest truth that we're telling that this is scary, it's hard, and, and yet we're not our trauma, we're not our automated emotions, we're not our labels, we're not what other people are projecting onto us, we're not our fears. We're so much more as a species, we're wired for this resilience and this ability to connect and, and come out of hiding. And it's a process, again, there's no, one, two, three step formula for anyone. But I think this is the process of liberation that we can endeavor in order to create that sense of safety. And if we if we go about life unsafe, it, 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 that's not worth it. It's not worth risking feeling unsafe to look good, right? So it, it, it begs us to, you know, it's a call to action. You you end the book on this notion of people becoming liberators. Mm. And I wonder when you think about that, maybe a mythic human you know, and you think that person, they're really embodying what it means to be a liberator. Mm. What what comes up for you? Georgia O'Keeffe. I start the book with her quote. Um, I it, I have it right here, actually. And she says something about, I've been terrified every day of my life, but it's never stopped me from doing anything I've wanted to do. And just as an artist, she they talk a lot. I, and I, I like I'm obsessed with Georgia O'Keeffe's work and her story, but there's a lot of discussion about how her sense of humor emboldened her to take greater creative risks and life risks, whether coming out or her, her moving, just all the risks she took as a person, as an artist, that's something that inspires me, that amazing ability to be an artist and live life as an artist in every regard, not just by what she painted, but how she lived her life. I've been talking with Kristen Lee. She's the author of the beautiful new book, Worth the Risk, How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and offer yourself to the world. Chris, thank you for offering yourself so fully, pouring yourself out. Uh, I see it, and uh, you bring up a feeling of reverence in me for the deep work that you're doing. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Tammy. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world.